The question, what is art, probably will never be answered to everyone's satisfaction. A case in point, Cadillac Ranch, five miles west of Amarillo, Texas. Ten Cadillac cars, half buried at exactly the same angle, they say, as the sides of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. Half-buried Cadillacs, giant muffler men, a forest made from bottles. In other words... The strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. These are the kinds of subjects a man named Robert L. Ripley challenged us to believe it or not. I'm Mark Hartsman, and in this episode of Weird Historian, we'll take a road trip across the country with former publicist and spokesperson for Ripley's Entertainment, Tim O'Brien. He's the author and photographer of Tim O'Brien's Roadside Picks and Picks, and as a one-time professional roller coaster rider and carnival goer, he's a man who's had a career most people didn't know was possible. Hey, Tim. How are you? Hey. Thanks for joining me on Weird Historian. I want to talk about your new book, Tim O'Brien's Roadside Picks and Picks, The Huge, The High, The Half Buried. It's filled with weird goodness. But before we dive into that, let's get a little bit into your background. I'm, I'm ready to roll. Well, I met you while you were working at Ripley's, where you got to work with all things weird. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about some of the unusual people that you met and some of the events that you experienced during that time. It was a wonderful run. I was with Ripley a little over 10 years after after leaving Amusement Business Magazine, which I spent 18 covering the outdoor entertainment industry. And then I narrowed it down a little bit more when I went to work with Ripley, covering and writing and actually organizing a lot of very odd events uh, during the years. I specialized basically in dealing with our 32, believe it or not, museums that we had around the world helping them create the PR plans and PR promotions. And I guess, I guess the fun parts of it is going to uh, going to work and working with swords followers all weekend or <laughs> working at a tattoo convention with the uh, all the uh, wonderful, weird entertainers out there that have tattoos from the top of their earlobes down to their little toes. And just this offbeat stuff in the world that's so fractionalized, it, it's fun seeing these people and dealing and working with them. So you helped uh, organize World Sword Swallowing Day, correct? A, a partnership with the Ripley's. Yeah. Uh, Dan Meyer, who was also living in Nashville at the time, uh, was a is, is a world-renowned sword swallower. I mean, he's got a good story. He's very chari- charismatic and he uh, is a good person to know. And He's got a, a company called, I think it's called Cutting Edge Entertainment. So the guy right. is much more than just an entertainer. He's an entrepreneur as well. And we got to know each other in Nashville. And he belonged to his organization. Uh, I guess it's a World Sword Swallowers. I, I, I am amiss at not knowing exactly. The, the Sword Swallowers Association International? That's it. That's it. Thank you, Mark. And we started talking about that. And he said that there's actually a thing called uh, World Sword Swallowing Day. And I thought, well, that's kind of fun. Uh, maybe I could get this hooked on each one of our venues and have sword swallowers show up at all of our, believe it or not, museums around the world and really promote it and say, you know, maybe get 47, 48, 50 sword swallowers to work for Ripley for the day and to promote sword swallowing as well as our venues in the various markets. He loved the idea, and he talked to several of his compatriots, and we, we did it the first year. I think we did it for seven years and uh, together. And the first year was, I don't know, we probably had a half a dozen or so show up. And by, by the end, we were getting close to 50 different sword swallowers at the various venues. New York being the largest at one time, I think we had 13 sword swallowers all gathered in the lobby up there. I think I may have been at that one. I was writing about it for AOL Weird News with our friend Buck Wolf. So your promotions were, were working. 
I yeah, was writing about them. They were, and it was it was fun seeing the various publications that actually wrote about it. It was a fun event, and it really helped the association, and it certainly helped Ripley, and it, I think it put a lot of uh, sword swallowers on the map. Were there other types of performers that you met that just were kind of amazing to you and thought, wow, I've never imagined something like this was possible, whether it was an act like sword swallowing or someone with a strange collection or uh, some strange anomaly? Well, Sideshow Benny is one of my favorites. Sideshow's been around for a long time. A lot of people in the industry know him. And it was the first time I ever saw the, the stapled money thing, which means that he would go around in his turban and his his pants, basically, no shirt. And people would come up and want to staple money to his body. And I, I thought, whoa, how that... And he would charge extra amount for various parts of his body. Uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes $5 was the smallest sometimes. And if you wanted to, to staple one on his butt, it was 50 or 60 bucks. What was the most expensive part of the body? Well, we won't talk about that. <laughs> Use the imagination. Yeah, use the imagination. And I mean, he loved it. He he not only got paid by the venue to be there as a performer, but this was kind of like the extra money, the uh, the blow off for a sideshow. People would stand in line with like a $5 bill just so they could pick up this big old stapler and just shove it into his body and staple the money to it. You know, he was a little red by the time he unstapled everything, but they were short staples but they still punctured, you know, put two holes in his body every time a staple went in. And uh, he said he never got infected or anything. So, so I always got him for any event that I possibly could, just so that I could have him headline it. And it worked. People were, were aghast. The whole concept of the oddities is to freak out the people who, who are watching. I used Benny also uh, once for our grand opening in San Antonio, uh, of the new one, and then of the brand new one in Baltimore, we used him as a human floor mat or a doormat. And what we would do is have him lay on a bed of nails, and then at the entrance to the museum in the doorway, then people could come in, step on him, <laughs> and step off of him to go into That's the museum. That's a great museum. idea. And we, that would be the um, souvenir take. We would have a photographer there and everybody that came in got to step on Benny and two people would help hold their hands up on either side so they to hold their balance. Benny's a little rotund, so it wasn't like stepping on a solid step. <laughs> and I, I see those. And a lot of people stay to this day when I see him. You know, my picture in San Antonio or in Baltimore was standing on Benny. It was my favorite shot ever. So, That's a great souvenir photo. Oh, it is. And it is. And I don't know of anybody else who's ever done that. So Sideshow was really fun working with. And then I got a chance to work with Nick Belinda, the high rope, uh, the tightrope walker uh, in Baltimore. The day of our grand opening, I had him walk from our balcony of the new museum, which was right on the Inner Harbor, out 300 yards to a uh, tugboat that we had or a barge that we had out in the middle of the bay. So he, he walked about 30 feet above the water all the way out. And we got about 10,000 people that came out because this was just like two months before his Niagara Falls walk. So this was a good prelude. And a lot of media was out there as well to grab interviews with him about the, the big Niagara Falls walk, which was coming up. And he was very, very pleasant and great to work with. What was fun was that his grandfather had walked across the harbor like 40 or 50 years ago. And so that was kind of like he was doing that in his honor. Yeah, he comes from a long line of wire walkers. For those who listening who don't know, the Walenda family, he's really amazing. He just did that walk, was maybe a year or two ago that was on national TV over the volcano. Yeah. Oh, yes. That guy's got nerves of steel. That's a good way of putting it, yes. Uh, but, you know, to him, it's a day's work. He's very confident. And he was very upset, I know, because when he walked across the harbor, he didn't have a harness on. But if he fell, he was going to go right into the, the harbor, which he said would probably be harder on his body than the fall itself, laying in that water in the harbor, just as a joke. But he was, he was upset because uh, his next walk was the uh, Niagara Falls walk, and ABC Network hired him 
and helped sponsored him for the TV special. And their whole thing at the last minute was you've got to wear a harness. And it came down to if he wanted to do this and get this attention and follow through, he would have to wear a harness. He felt that the whole harness thing was actually more dangerous for him because it could have gotten in his way or whatever and caused uh, if it got snagged on the wire or something. But I know. And then I saw when he walked across the canyon as well as when he walked across the volcano, he had he had harnesses on as well. So I think that's a whole liability thing and which is pretty smart. And as it showed that he didn't need it ever because he didn't fall. So it would have been different if he would have fallen. But a lot of people think it took the, uh, the edge off with him wearing the harness. Right. Well, it takes away, I guess, the danger, right? People want to see danger, even though, of course, you don't want anything to happen to him. But the sense of danger, I suppose. The sense of danger, yeah. Because I would think that falling 10 or 15 feet off and dangling over a volcano from a wire 100 feet off, I would say that's quite dangerous in itself. So. Yeah, that would still make anyone's heart skip a beat. And his <laughs> maybe a couple beats. <laughs> Absolutely. But that's the kind of stuff that we try to do. And then, you know, Ripley also has the have the three aquarium, uh, which a lot of people really found kind of uh, unusual that uh, Ripley's, you know, I tell them, yeah, well, we promote uh, we have we own three aquariums. And they said, what do you have, two headed fish? <laughs> so people thought our, but we actually they were world class aquariums, and the one in Gatlinburg is consistently named the first or second favorite aquarium in the in the country every year. So we were looking for promote different promotions to do for that, and we started it in Myrtle Beach. We have one in Myrtle Beach, one in Gatlinburg, and one in Toronto. And we thought, what could we do? So I thought, well, what goes with fish? Well, mermaids. Well, when you think of mermaids, who do you think of? Weeki Wachi down in Florida. So I arranged for the first ever trip for Weeki Wachi mermaids to actually leave their home waters and to swim in an aquarium. And they came up and they, uh, they, they scouted it and figured out a routine that they could do. And so for a three-day weekend, I think it was, uh, for that first year, we promoted it. And wow, you, you wouldn't believe people were lined up so that they could come and sit in front of the big tank that we had and watch them swim and do their acts and so forth. And we had a narrator and it became very popular. And we started doing that on a yearly basis. And we started doing Gatlinburg and that started working out really well. And it was fun working with such a historic group as as Wiki Watchy. You know, they were they were created back in, I think, 1947. And so much history down there. So we were able to tell the story of Wiki Wachi and at the same time tell the story of the aquariums, plus get people that might have otherwise not come to an aquarium to see the mermaids. What is their story? Just a quick background on this mermaid troop? Well, it's Wiki Wachi Springs now. It's a state park, but for years it was just Wiki Wachi. And it was one of the original, I guess you could call it roadside attractions in Florida. And it's in Wikiwachi Springs uh, on the West Coast and Northwest part of Florida. It's a big, big springs. It's a natural springs that feeds out into a, uh, some one river, and I'm not sure what it is. But it's beautiful, crystal clear. And somebody back in 1947 thought, how much fun would it be to have a mermaid show? So they they built like an underwater viewing stand, of course, protected by glass. And then the mermaids would come down and they had to uh, uh, come up with a way. They didn't want to wear scuba gear or air tanks. So they found a way that they could just carry a, like a hose with forced air. And just every two or three minutes, whenever they needed air, make sure that they were near one of these dispensers and squeeze it and just blow the air right into their into their mouths. It was it was genius at the time. And I think ABC, uh, the network, owned it for a while and went through the years, uh, then start, started seeing a decline in the 60s and 70s. And the state park uh, uh, group in Florida took it over and they've been putting money back into it. The, the Mermaid Show continues. And it's uh, it, it, it's really a piece of Americana. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. You had uh, quite an amazing day job. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. You were living the, living the dream. 
yes, yes. I was very blessed and very lucky uh, to have the opportunities that I had. You know, from my college days right up until today, a lot of my, I guess, success was built around the fact that I was also a photographer, not just a journalist. And that, in fact, that got me my my very first picture uh, when I was a junior in high school. I was coming back from school on the school bus, and there was a house on fire. And I asked Sam, the bus driver, to pull over for a second. And I jumped out, took a couple pictures, and went home, got my dark room, and printed pictures and sold it to the local newspaper for ten bucks. And he said, "I'd have given you twenty if you would have written a cut line for me and told me a little bit about it." So I thought, "Okay, that's cool." So. That put me on my uh, on my path for uh, journalism. Then I got, of course, into broadcast journalism and photojournalism while I was in school, and been able to support uh, my wife and kids and my entire family all those years, just taking pictures and doing weird and fun stuff like riding roller coasters and going to wiki watchy shows. That all sounds like a pretty awesome way to make a living and support a family. What got you into the stranger side of life? Why did you take photojournalism to odd and unusual places? Was it something you always liked? You just mentioned roller coasters and amusement parks. What was it that led you on that path? Uh, the color and the smells and the kinetic energy of a midway. Uh, I guess it is the best way to put it. Ever since I was a little kid, I was always lured into carnivals and amusement parks. And then when I got in high school and into college, I just found, I found out what a roller coaster is all about. In fact, I, I rode my very first roller coaster on my first communion day when I was 12 years old. <laughs> I was in my little white suit and I threw up all over. <laughs> but uh, it's a good celebration. Oh man, I'll tell you that was, and that was luckily only the first of two times that I ever threw up on roller coasters. And I've ridden the close to 700 roller coasters in 29 different countries now. Wow. What was the second throw up? Cause you got to tell us now. Okay. It was a Disney, I forget the name of their coaster, but it was the one that not only went up and down, but round and round. And it, it, it was a spinning coaster, and I forget what they named it, but uh, I think it was an Epcot. I knew I didn't want to ride it, but it was a hot day. I was there with uh, the Disney people. I said, I can't do this. I'm going to get sick. And they said, no, you're not. No, you're not. You can handle it. After drinking, you know, I'm sure I had a couple of glasses of wine for lunch. Uh, then we went over and rode that thing. It was like 130 degrees hot. And they, as soon as we left the station, I knew I was in trouble. And we won't go any <laughs> further than that. But uh, You weren't wearing a white suit that day, though, at least, right? No, you're, you're absolutely <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank heaven. But anyway, uh, you know, I started in photography in high school, shooting the football games of our high school. And then when I went off to college... I got a, a job, a part-time job in the athletic department of the Ohio State University where I went. And I was in the, got to shoot practice sessions and game day of Ohio State football with Woody Hayes, which was really the highlight of my career, I think. Now, I was also a photographer. I ended up putting myself through school as a wedding photographer. Uh, shoot, I shot over 500 weddings uh, in the five years that it took me to get out of school. You know, I was doing all that stuff, but I would also try whenever I could to go to amusement parks and carnivals. So then I went to uh, went to New York and worked for history and antique publication. And so that that got me into trade publications. Before that, you know, I was trained to be a photojournalist. And usually the first thing you think of when you go to school and go to college is, OK, I'm going to get out, work for the big daily or we'll go to work for USA Today or something like that as a as a as a true journalist, but I was never introduced to trade publications, trade journalism, which specializes in one particular industry. So I was able to get a job, first of all, with a rock and roll magazine out on Long Island in New York. And then I left from there and helped found a history and antique publication. So I went from rock and roll to antiques to history. And all during that time, I was, uh, again, traveling around all the carnivals on Long Island. And then one day, I looked into our trade publication for journalism at that time. And I thought, well, look at this. Here's an ad that looks like it was just written just for me. They were looking for someone with publishing as well as editing, as well as photography, as well as 
just every other skill that I had, they, they had in the ad. And I answered it. And three months later, I was hired by amusement business in Nashville. So I moved, moved my family from Long Island down to Nashville. Best move I ever made. And ended up working for amusement business for 18 years, covering uh, mostly the amusement park fair carnival industries. As part of that, you know, I, I met a lot of people in the sideshow industries. I became uh, friends with Grady Styles Sr., the uh, lobster boy. And he, he, he got me very interested in all the other sideshow acts and the standalone sideshows, the singles, as they called them. So I was very much impressed with the odd. And I always went to sideshows when I could. But my main interest was uh, in rides. And we covered the the business side of things. We didn't, when, when I covered a new roller coaster opening, I went out and wrote it, of course, but I didn't write about how cool it was and how many drops there were and all of this. I covered more about the business side of it. We were a business publication. So I got the, got a real sense of the makings and the thinking behind industry, the return on investment. Uh, okay. We're spending $6 million this year on a new roller coaster. What are we going to uh, to do to pay for it? Are we going to have to raise the rates, uh, our gates? Or are we going to just raise this? And, that? and it was very interesting. So I loved all of that. And then back in 2003, about the beginning of the year, I thought, you know, I've been here for 18 years. I really need to start thinking about what I wanted to do. By that time, I'd made good friends with the people at Ripley's. And Bob Masterson, who was then president, was, I considered, a, uh, a friend, a colleague, and did a lot of stories about him and about Ripley's. And I uh, uh, talked to him, said I was interested in making the move by the end of the year. And he hired me and uh, came on uh, January 1, 2004, uh, with Ripley's. It was, it was a great ride with Ripley. And uh, I started off doing really editing of their daily comic strip, which Robert Ripley himself started in 1918. And that was kind of a, that, yeah, that was kind of a cool thing uh, that I was actually one of the editors of this long running comic strip. And I did that for about six, seven years in addition to my uh, other work in, in PR and the openings. We opened several venues during those years, including the uh, the Great Wolf Lodge. We actually owned the Great Wolf Lodge up in Niagara Falls, and we opened that. So spent a lot of time up there uh, working with the media and uh, uh, with the marketing people. And so we had a, had a lot of fun doing that over the years. And then it got down to the point that it was in, I think, 2009, I got the idea Let's let's bring back to life Ripley's radio show, because in addition, I don't know if you knew it or not, but Robert Ripley had a long radio show. And then, oh, he, yeah, then he went into television. So on the whims and with the blessing of our uh, president and our people in publishing, I started creating I created the odd cast for Ripley's. And we ran that 200 shows over a five year period. And it was a weekly show. So we had a. We had a good time doing all of that for a long time. Then during that time, I really got involved and got to meet a lot of the people who I had booked and got to know them better because they were guests on our radio show and was able to sit for an hour and talk to people and just had a lot of uh, a lot of good insights. And so when I retired from Ripley in 2014, I started concentrating much more on the circus and the sideshow. And so my area of interest went all the way from, you know, football when I was a teenager up through antiques and rock and roll and carnivals, amusement parks, fairs, now in the sideshows and in the radio. And it kind of like it seemed like it was destined to be, you know, all all coming together. And then I went and then in the last three or four years, I've kind of switched from people the oddities of people to the oddities that you find on the roadside. I've gotten really attached to roadside America and the world's largest, this world's funkiest, this, the, uh, you know, and then really enjoying traveling, doing a lot of road trips and traveling all over the country, taking pictures and, 
Yeah, it all culminated into uh, last spring, uh, the publishing of the book that you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Yeah, I want to dive into that. I just have to say, all these experiences that you've talked about, I mean this in the nicest possible way, it's like you've been a professional kid your entire career. <laughs> Amusement parks, I got to go ride roller coasters today in 28 or 29 countries, as you mentioned. I'm going to carnivals and sideshows and, and meeting the lobster boy. And uh, I mean, it. it's, I'm jealous. I mean, this is awesome. This is like the life. <laughs> you know, it is. And luckily, I, I smelled the roses along the road because I really... Yes, that's important. Because, you know, just the access that being a... Um, when I started writing for amusement business back in 85, I was the only full-time employee covering the amusement park industry in the entire world, the only writer. There were a lot of writers writing about, but they, would, they were working for other publications or freelancing or whatever. But I was the only one in 1985 and 86 that specific job was to write about amusement parks. And, wow. and that was cool. So that really gave me a lot of insight and a lot of accessibility to the point where you know, Larry Cochran of Six Flags, I could call him and pretty much get him on the phone anytime I needed him. I was able to get in, get to know Michael Eisner's secretary at, at Disney. I'm just imagining your family vacations right now. <laughs> hi, hi uh, Mike Eisner. Bringing the kids to the park. <laughs> yeah, Mike, can you fix me up with a couple? Can we of jump to the front of the line, please? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, and the, the the fun part of it was, and I joke about it now, but it was. I think it hurt them more than it did uh, made that I enjoyed. But uh, you know, like my kids said, "Hey, hey, Dad, can you come to the soccer game on Saturday or whatever?" And I says, "No." Six Flags is opening a new coaster on Saturday, and I've got to go ride roller coasters this weekend. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> the, I don't think any other dads had that excuse. <laughs> uh, they appreciate it now. They they do. Yeah. But you know, back then it, it was it was hard. But unfortunately, when you cover the outdoor entertainment industry, most of the events that they do that you need to cover are on weekends. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So that means you were gone. Uh, I'd say three weekends out of the month, you know, and, uh, and I loved it and, you know, but it's, uh, it definitely is, is not something that's, uh, conducive to closeness with your children when they're real young. Right. Well, let's take a quick break and then let's go visit some of these roadside attractions. We'll be right back. Want to see ghosts in your own home, learn how to speak to the dead or go on a sightseeing tour of hell? At Curious Publications, we take wonderfully odd public domain books lost to obscurity and give them new life. Shop CuriousPublications.com We've all heard about little green men on Mars and the evil creatures in War of the Worlds. But what about the Martians who aren't little, green, or evil at all? According to many 20th century scientists, our interplanetary neighbors were quite tall, up to 10 feet in height, with skinny legs, large feet, big chests, and superior intelligence. And they were desperately trying to contact us. Find out about these early Martians and much more in The Big Book of Mars by Mark Hartsman. Filled with entertaining history, pop culture ephemera, and interviews with NASA scientists, it's the most comprehensive look at our relationship with Mars. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The Big Book of Mars is available from Quirk Books at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop.org, and wherever else you buy books. Tim, your new book, as I mentioned earlier, is Roadside Picks in Picks. How many roads did you have to travel to fill this book? And tell us about some of the most unusual attractions that you found along the way. So if I told you I traveled 717 highways, would you challenge me on that? No. Okay, good. I traveled 717 <laughs> roads to get these pictures. Uh, what I did, for, again, like I said, for years, I always liked it. I always carried my camera with me everywhere I go. And I still do. I always either carry one in my over my shoulder or in my back pocket. I don't use a cell phone photo uh, camera. Um, so I've got quote unquote real cameras. I've, I've always carried them with me. So as we're going down the highway, see something fun and funky, colorful. Like I said earlier, I love everything whimsical, the kinetic 
energy that things show, of course, the brightness, the colorful, uh, the neon signs, the colorful trailers, rides, and so that always attracted me. So I shot a lot of photos. When I traveled with amusement business, what I would do is uh, when I could, I would stay a day longer or go in a day early and maybe fly into a nearby city and then do a road trip from that city into wherever I had to be so that I could see different things that I had heard about over the years. And then, of course, when I was with Ripley, got to see a lot of a lot of the different stuff. So and then when I retired from Ripley, as I said, I, I got more interested in roadside. And at that particular point, I started making specific trips down Route 66, on Lincoln Highway, Highway 50, the Interterrestrial Highway out in Nevada, uh, Highway 1. You know, that's wherever I knew that I could find a lot of lot of things, quote unquote, that's where you'd usually find me. And I would take four or five road trips a, a year, maybe a week, week and a half, and fly into somewhere, rent a car, and then drop it off somewhere else and fly home and have a lot of fun. Wow. How many attractions might you see on one of those trips? Oh, it depends on where you would go. Uh, sometimes the real bummers was when you had to fly into a place, drive 80 miles to see one thing, and then there's nothing else within 100 miles that you'd heard about. So that's when you right. go freelancing or uh, freewheeling. You just start looking. You start driving up and down the streets of a town hoping for funky signs. Or, and I found a lot of stuff that way as, uh, as well. But... Other times, like when you fly into L.A., it's endless. <laughs> you know, you could spend. It took me. Uh, it took me two days to get a picture of all the giant, all the big donuts in the L.A. area. Oh right, yeah, those are plentiful. Give us a few examples of some of the strangest ones. The strangest outside of large donuts. Uh, yeah. Well, the the book is divided really into four four different sections. They're the roadside art parks. And those are, um, I don't know what, how to explain it more than just artwork put together by individuals who looked around, saw a piece of iron here, something here, a tin can here, a rubber tire here. And they call it assemblage art, uh, where you just build different things. Well, like one of them is Elmer Long's uh, Bottle Tree Ranch out in California. And you walk onto this property and there's bottles everywhere, colorful bottles. He created uh, windmills with them. He created pyramids with them. And uh, you know, they're forever trying up in Wisconsin. Uh, this guy had his whole concept. He created a whole theme to this that when he died, he was going to be put into this capsule and the capsule was going to be shot up by all these electronic things around. And he built this, this fantasy piece. And then, you know, that's, that's all right out to the Salvation Mountain out in, uh, uh, it's lower, uh, it's very south of California. Yes. I wrote about that in my book, God Made Me Do It. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, but God made him do it. He just take, took bales of hay and straw and then poured paint on them and just built this mountain and had all these wonderful sayings about God. And uh, his tra he lived in his trailer out in the middle of the desert with no air conditioning for years. And he would give people free tours if they brought a bucket of paint with them. Uh, wow. So he never had to pay. Yeah. You know, did you bring a bucket of paint? No, no. Well, he's already <laughs> dead, so he didn't. Oh, okay. Uh, nobody was there checking me. Um, <laughs> I brought my camera instead. Um, so those are called roadside art parks. And I also, a little thing that I, kind of my own genre, I, I, I started actually naming them, and it's things on a pole. <laughs> a lot of times they advertise specific things, like a, a, a fish restaurant might have a big fish out, out front on a pole. Uh, ice cream shop would have a big ice cream cone. And then you see, you know, boats, trucks, cars in front of uh, their places that sell them, uh, tractors, and the world's largest, of course, like the world's largest ketchup bottle on a pole uh, in Colorsville uh, in Illinois. And then just stuff. You know, you go down the road and you look out there in the, out in the middle of the field and there's this guy who built, you know, welded three pieces of iron together and put a, a tractor tire on the top, <laughs> you know? Okay. Why? 
And that, that's my favorite question and probably the question that asks me the most. Did you get any answers to that question? Like, were you able to meet with some of the people who created these things, like Elmer? Could you yeah. ask some questions? And what kind of responses did you get? A lot of people, um, you know, luckily, uh, the art parks especially, I was able to meet with like three or four of them that have now died. Uh, so I'm so glad I interviewed them. They're just uh, eccentric. I told you about the theme that Dr. Evermore created for his Forevertron. But there's also one in Brownsville, Tennessee, home of Tina Turner. But it has nothing to do with her, but it's called Billy Tripp's Mind Field. And he has built these huge things that looks like almost like an electrical substation. Uh, but he's got things like canoes and <laughs> everything else welded together. And he signs. It's a story of his life. He basically said he wanted to tell the story of his life. And uh, he's going to be buried uh, under it when he when he dies. And a lot of a lot of people just have a good time creating for the sake of creating. Then the half buried is where you get into really some good stories. Half buried. The name of the name of the book, as you said, is the huge, the high, the half buried, and the half buried is like a Cadillac Ranch. A lot, most people have probably heard of that. But then you know, there's other other more uh, obscure ones. Uh, there's a boat hinge and beer bottle city. You know, truck hinge, boat hinge, and beer bottle city all wrapped in one. Can you imagine the excitement of walking into that? So boat hinge is combined with the other ones? Uh, no. and, and they're all like boats half buried, but sort of set up in a Stonehenge-like configuration? Yep, yep. Uh, the only one that's really set up like Stonehenge is the um, car hinge out in, uh, it's it's called Car Hinge in the Car Art Reserve. It's out in Nebraska, in Western Nebraska. And that's actually created by old Cadillacs that were positioned exactly like Stonehenge itself. And they're piled on top of each other where it calls were, where the, there was three stones. And then they were painted gray to resemble the uh, the Stonehenge in itself. So, that, that was kind of fun seeing that. I just was in awe when I drove up to that for the very first time. And then there's wow. other funny ones like Amarillo. You've got Cadillac Ranch on one end, and then you've got Bug Ranch on the other side of Amarillo where Volkswagen bugs were planted, half planted in a row as an attraction to pull people into a, a gas station uh, rest stop <laughs> area. And, and then south of Amarillo, you've got what I, I, I think is the kind of the most odd is Combine City. And it's a farmer who, you know, farm combine, a uh, piece of a big piece of farm equipment. And when his worn out, he thought, well, I'm not going to destroy it. I'm going to pay homage to Cadillac Ranch. So he half buried his combine. Then other farmers started donating their combines to him. And so now he's got this huge field full of half-buried combines, which, which really is fun. Uh, but unlike Cadillac Ranch, where you're in, almost required to bring a can of spray paint and spray paint the Cadillacs, th this guy's got his barbed wire around it so you can't go in and spray paint his combines. <laughs> but Bug Ranch has also been spray painted. But then things like a truck hinge and boat hinge, he doesn't have any issues with that because it's all in his own private property behind a fence. But he lets people walk around and then enjoy things. And he's quite the artist. These people are really interesting artists. And they do a lot of stuff just because it's there. And a lot of people do it out of the sake of uh, kind of putting a thumb, uh, what do you call it, thumbing their nose at society. Uh, well, what do you mean I can't do that? I'm going to do that. That was Lesman's truck hinge and boat hinge. The city kept saying, you can't do this. You can't do this. Well, why can't I? Well, you're on the river and the river may flood and wash away and then it would destroy the bridges and the dams downstream, even though he was behind this big dike. And so he went out and put, I forget, I think there are 500 pounds of cement inside each one of these vessels to keep them from floating away. And over the years, he's never had any issues at all. 
and then that was a that's the half buried part, which which I identified thirteen places that have half buried vehicles, and including a guy in Wisconsin who has four of them buried in his front yard. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Wait, what is what does he have buried in his front yard? He has four cars. Oh, four uh, cars. Okay, and he he runs a uh, a body shop in downtown Milwaukee, and his. Uh, um, his slogan is, "If we can't fix it, we'll bury it." And when you when you see something like that, and you go directly to find this uh, and to search it out, you want to meet this person because you know damn well they're so whimsy and they're going to be so much fun talking to. And uh, so then the the fourth chapter uh, of the book is called "Roadside Giants," and that's what we're all familiar with. With the donuts, it was a, it's a double whammy because they were things on a pole and they were roadside giants. So I was really confused <laughs> as to where to put them. But you see, Pigeon Forge and Branson are, are wonderful for that because they got big alligators, oh, yeah. dinosaurs. But my two favorite ones are pink elephants, which there's a lot of around the country, and muffler men. And muffler men are not necessarily made of mufflers, but they are giants created to... Uh, I don't know, 30 foot tall, maybe um, there are different sizes, but one company made most of them and they stand there. They're painted whatever color you want them, but they've got their hands out holding a muffler. So that's the reason they were originally called mufflermen. But now these are being used to hold ice cream cone in one hand and maybe a sandwich in the other, or they, they've been modified to help support businesses all over the country. And they're, they're really a lot of fun to look at. Uh, they're really attracting. They, they're mostly put out to attract attention to bring people into their businesses. Unlike the other three chapters that I covered, I think roadside giants are probably on more on the commercial side of things than any because they're usually cared for very well and they're there for a purpose, not just because somebody wants to build a giant something or another. Right. Yeah. It's, it's more advertising. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, and it works. Yeah. They're fun to see. If you want an ice cream cone and you go around the corner and you see this 30 foot guy dressed up like a soda jerk holding this 10 foot tall ice cream cone. Well, chances are you're going to go inside. Yeah, it's a no-brainer, right? Yeah. That's the place you want to go to because yeah. that one looks fun. I go a little bit further. Not only do I, maybe even if I'm not hungry for ice cream, I'm going to go in and buy something as a thank you just for having that statue out front. Because <laughs> you know? these things aren't cheap. Same way with neon signs. I'm working on an exhibit right now with neon and talking to the people that have neon signs out front are uh, are very similar to people who've got roadside giants out front because they use it and pay that little bit extra and use a little more creativity to attract the type of clientele that they really want. It's, it's really fun dealing with these people and, and roadside giants as well as neon usually, and I would say almost always never made by the people who own or run the business that they advertise they're 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 specialties like neon it's it's a special art so you you've got a nice art mixed with something that's very kinetic and very colorful and very attraction especially ones that move and uh flash and like the arrows that start and the actual arrow looks like it's moving and things like that so this all falls into roadside america and it's it's something that is Keeping me very happy right now. <laughs> of, of yeah, of, sounds like it. Of these roadside giants, which was the most giant? <laughs> Is there a giant uh, of them all? Uh, a giant of them all. Yes, <laughs> and you, you'll probably laugh when I tell you because you know after dealing with all the other, yeah. You know, ice cream guys, the muffler men, the the dinosaurs, the fish. I actually like a really a true piece of art. It's out in Chamberlain, South Dakota, and it's a 50-foot-tall statue of uh, a Native American woman uh, in full garb, and it's called Dignity. It's on a high. It's it's in the Lewis and Clark Roadside Park on Highway 90, 
just at the top of the bluff before you go down into the Missouri Valley. And this statue is just absolutely gorgeous. And the feathers on her outerwear is, are made out of small mirrors that kind of flicker in the wind and the sunlight. And it is absolutely gorgeous. And I spend probably more time just sitting there in awe of that. It's a one-of-a-kind thing, it's, and, it, it, and it's amazing. A lot of people, when you say roadside attractions, roadside America, the first thing you think of is the odd and whimsical. Yes. As opposed to true pieces of roadside uh, uh, art. And there is a lot of good roadside art out there that does not fit into the odd category. And a lot of it fits into the odd category, but wasn't created to be so. <laughs> you know, it's the world's tallest Indian uh, is up in Skowhegan, Maine. And it's uh, made by a very famous uh, artist, Bernard Langless. And he's created a lot of these wooden figures all over the state. I mean, they're, they're beautiful in their own right, but they, they are an oddity because they are so different. But they, they, do, they do justice if you want to enjoy just fun and funky stuff. Are all of these roadside attractions relics of the past or are they still being built? I mean, I guess you were saying that some of these artists do it, so I guess... In that sense, people are still doing this. But in general, is this kind of a thing of the past or, or are there still people out there kind of actively creating these things? Uh, I think they're actively creating things. Because what you see out there now is not something that you saw the creation of. and Oh, let's build Roadside America. And 10 years later, you've got old. I mean, a lot of the stuff I'm looking at out there are 40, 50, 60 years old. So what we see now is an accumulation and so that the the vast number in itself uh, is 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 what's really uh, fun about this. But there are people creating new roadside attractions, again with uh, various world's largest type of things, colorful neon buildings, vernacular architecture that actually look like what they're talking about, like the old uh, gas stations that were in a gas pump and stuff like that. But yeah, people are probably more now what they're doing. There's a good uh, good movement where a lot of people are going back and saying, you know, I want a muffler man in front of my store. I got to go find one. And there are a lot of muffler men. There are a lot of these things out there that are just shoved out into a field somewhere where people don't even know they exist. But so they're they're uncovering stuff and renovating them and polishing them up and shining them up and then mounting them in front of businesses. I like that. That makes me feel good. They yeah. deserve to be cared for. Yeah, preservation. And in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma, they are very alert now and they're trying to build signs. They're trying to build a lot of, put up a lot of neon at Route 66 Tulsa Improvement they're working together and trying to uh, restore a lot of the old neon signs as well as creating new ones. And a new muffler man was actually built for a small attraction out there a couple of years ago. So people do sense that there's some nostalgic there, nostalgia there. Um, and it's people, I think, with wonderlust and uh, just whimsy and wonderlust and who own a camera. Uh, want to see this stuff. I start my book out by by basically saying, I am a son of wonderlust and I have a camera. And that's a dangerously beautiful combination, as I have found. <laughs> right. It is. So where is Tim O'Brien headed next? Well, uh, I am currently working on two other books. Um, yeah, well, yeah, two to start with here. But what I want to do is working on one dedicated specifically to uh, pink, uh, pink elephants. Uh, there's a lot of them out there in the country, and there's a lot of stories behind them. Because they all started, you know, when you, the pink elephant is kind of like a metaphor for being drunk. Uh, you see pink elephants, right? And a lot of liquor stores and bars have pink elephants out front. Ah, okay. So I'm, I'm compiling my own photos as well as other photographers' photos of pink elephants. And that's probably the third of the two books I'm working on. But I'm going to do a similar book 
to uh, two of my favorite states. One's Tennessee and one's in Maine. And that's going to do roadside picks and picks, kind of like off the beaten path book done by photography. But I'm not wasting a lot of time sitting in front of a computer editing photos because there's still so much out there I got to see. So I'll probably not put out another book, but just have a great collection of photos when I die. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'll get something put out uh, and we'll look forward to seeing it. Where can people get Tim O'Brien's roadside picks and picks? Good way to do it is Amazon. Uh, Amazon Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. That's the best way to do it. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Tim. This is great to hear all this. And I think you've had the most fun someone could have in a career. It's been amazing from everything you were just uh, sharing with us. Enjoy working on these new books and the adventures you'll have ahead. It sounds like it's going to be amazing. Yeah, not a bad life for a 40-year-old, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mark. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. Good work. Thank you, too. Thanks for listening. Find Tim O'Brien's Roadside Picks and Picks and other books at Tim's Amazon author page. The link is in the show notes. Weird Historian is brought to you by me, Mark Hartsman. The opening clip comes from a 1983 episode of Ripley's Believe It or Not. The theme song was created by Steffi Copeland, and this episode was edited and mixed by James Archer. For their strange tales, check out my site, weirdhistorian.com, and follow at weirdhistorian on Instagram. Lastly, if you like this podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends and share it wherever you share stuff. I'd greatly appreciate the help. Until next time, have a weird day. lot more old drunks than I do old doctors. Here come the elephants two by two, pink little pachyderms following you. It's about time you started thinking about giving up all your drinking. Here come the elephants two by two, pink little pachyderms following you.